This week, our good friend Ron Gula joins us to talk about cybersecurity investments, tips for both enterprises and entrepreneurs. In the enterprise security news, a lot of funding announcements. Coalition, Herasoft, Cowbell Cyber, which is my favorite name for a company that got funding this week. Argonne, Cynet, Docker, uh, Cyware, uh, Acquisitions, Sonatype acquires MuseDev, SumoLogic acquires DF Labs, Acronis acquires Synapsis, different from Synopsis, Lookout grabs CypherCloud, and a cybersecurity SPAC. Casada announces some new features to its bot detection offering. Rapid7 introduces an agent for CloudFront. Aqua supports ARM. Chris Roberts joins Cynet. Uh, in our last interview, we do Ilya Kolachenko, the founder and chief architect at ImmuniWeb, to talk about attack surface management. Stay tuned for all that and more on this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. As your attack surface stretches from the data center to the cloud and the device edge, security teams need visibility across it all to confidently detect and respond to threats. Experience frictionless hybrid security that helps you stop breaches 84% faster with ExtraHop's Reveal X360, the first and only SaaS-delivered network detection and response. Explore the interactive demo at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. JumpCloud offers a cloud directory platform that gives users a single identity for their email, apps, network, and work device. Whether Mac, Windows, or Linux, JumpCloud gives IT admins a single pane of glass to configure and secure those devices. With JumpCloud, remote onboarding and offboarding goes from hours to under five minutes and puts zero trust security within reach for organizations of any size. Looking for a directory that supports heterogeneous OSs or you need just SSO, MDM, LDAP, or MFA? JumpCloud will make your job easier. Try it out for yourself at securityweekly.com forward slash jumpcloud. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly. It's episode number 220, right here on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2021. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined remotely by Adrian Sanabria. Adrian, welcome. Hey, uh, looking forward to today. Some great interviews today. Absolutely. No green lights today. It's St. Patrick's Day, but no green. You had green uh, I'll, before. I'll, I, I will treat that as a request and fix that short. Got to work on that. Mr. Tyler Shields is here with us with some something written on the whiteboard. Yeah. So so today it says, uh, you know, some write their passwords on a sticky note, some in a notebook, but the brave use their whiteboard. <laughs> it's so I didn't come up with that, uh, Gustavo, from your team did, but I thought it was uh, whiteboard worthy this week. That's right. So whiteboard is your password. Interesting. Taking notes. Uh, don't, tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> Uh, let's see a quick announcement before we get into it. If you want to stay in the loop, all things Security Weekly, visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Subscribe to your favorite on your favorite podcast catcher to our YouTube channel. Sign up for our mailing list, join our Discord server, and check out all of the shows on the Security Weekly Network. Joining us today, of course, our good friend Ron Gula, president at Gula Tech Ventures, is here with us and so much history in, in cybersecurity. Our paths have crossed many times. Ron, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul and everybody. Glad to be here. Good seeing everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it is St. Patrick's Day. I'm looking forward to uh, the resulting meal and beer, uh, corned beef, cabbage, and beer. It's good. I eat it once a year. 
<laughs> so, Ron, um, we want to talk about uh, investing, and I want to I want to talk about it in a couple of different uh, aspects. I guess we'll start first with the entrepreneurial aspect and how difficult it is to say the word entrepreneur. Uh, for me at least. Uh, but you've got uh, a, a great, and it's often referenced when we're talking to uh, startups, is your uh, article, I think you did uh, presentations on it as well, on how to uh, put together a pitch deck, right? Yeah, I've got something called the uh, five slide pitch deck. And I will transform that to like five questions you should ask yourself if you want to start a cybersecurity company. And uh, it's pretty straightforward. The first one's the hardest one. What problem do you solve? Mm. You know, then the second one is how do you solve it? Third thing is, you know, do you have some proof? Fourth thing, if you're going to ask for some money, you know, what, uh, what are you going to do with the money? And then finally, what is your vision of success? And you would be surprised how many people can't answer those questions. And, and it really drives to the core of, uh, of their startup. They all, I often find, Ron, when I work with startups too, is that they, they've got like a 20-slide pitch deck. Like they're just going into all detail all across the map, right? And then this is great because it really helps them consolidate it down. Like this is what investors want to hear basically, right? And focus. And, and it, it's just kind of st- tough because you don't want to say that a vet, an investor isn't going to read your deck. But the reality is if you get 20 or 30 you know, PDFs or PowerPoints a week, mm. you can kind of go through them pretty, pretty quickly. It's kind of like I've seen this episode on TV before, right? Or this plot's been done before. And because really two companies really fall into two categories. They're either 5% better than what's out there. You know, I can detect malware better than CrowdStrike. I can find vulnerabilities better than, 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 than Tenable, right? Or I'm coming to you from the future with some problem that you've never even heard of. So, you know, the investor is going to be looking for one of those two things. They, they kind of know what they're looking for. So this helps them be efficient and it helps you be efficient because last thing you want to do is do a two-hour pitch meeting with somebody who has no interest in really investing in you. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting with the 5% better and like amazing futuristic idea, both those are grounded in tech, no? I mean, do, do you dig into the tech in both of those kind of categories? Well, technology is definitely a, an, an issue here. And, you know, the 5% better, you know, Renaud Darrison, our co-founder at uh, Tenable, he, he kind of told me that. And once he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely seeing that. And it can be applied to anything, like how my VPN, it takes, you know, 5% less CPU than, than, than everything else. Or, you know, I have a Docker control system that can manage, you know, a little bit more. It's a little bit cheaper. There's always something better, faster, cheaper. And if it's only 5% better, faster, cheaper why is someone going to switch over to it? You know, maybe you're bringing it to a new market and you're in a greenfield and that's fine. Maybe you really are going into the enterprise and trying to recreate things. I mean, when Palo Alto started, the world wasn't saying, wow, you know, we really need a next generation firewall. Yeah, they, they certainly, I think, created that category. Do you look for category creation too? Or is it, is well, that's it that, hard, right? That's that uh, if, you're, if you're solving a problem that uh, you know, nobody knows they have, or like I didn't realize you could unify you know, these two things or these, these, uh, these different kind of market, that's a market creator. Now you look at something like um, the breach and attack simulation market, right? You mm-hmm. got Veridin who got acquired by FireEye. You got stuff you know, more advanced like the Scythe tool, which actually simulates you know, full-on you know, benign malware. You know, people would say that's just an extension of penetration testing, but it really is a different market, breach and attacks uh, simulation. You look at something like SOAR, 
people would say, well, SOAR is just alerting that was the SIM vendors were supposed to do, you know, and now you've got XDDR, XDR, which is kind of, you know, unifying, you know, all those things together, including the endpoint. So these, these market creators are, are a little bit, you know, kind of built on the shoulders of the past, but sometimes they really are new markets solving, solving real problems. It doesn't necessarily have to be a new market though, right? If you've got an amazing new, new way, right? I said market, but I probably really meant category. Mm. You know, the, the really thing is, is perception of these categories is, is in, it's, it's a little bit all over the place. Is there a buyer, you know, at the, these enterprise organizations? Is it a, something tracked by Gartner? Is it um, like, like, I really don't think, um, I don't want to like, you know, people are working on a lot of different things, right? I'm not really looking to invest perhaps in better quantum resistant cryptography. I mean, that's just not something I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do. And most venture capitalists aren't really jumping on that. And I'll probably get some hate mail, hate tweets because of that. Mm. But because of that, I don't really see like there's this big crypto market out there. Mm. Uh, cryptography has been around for a long time, but people aren't, if anything, they're moving to the cloud and buying CASB solutions, you know, Zscaler, Netscope. How can I use crypto to get me to my, my uh, cloud applications? But people aren't trying to like switch out their network cryptography because they're, they're uh, afraid China is going to somehow decrypt all those packets. Well, yeah, it seems hey, like you can be uh, early and, and, you know, being early to market and late to market come with their own challenges. Yeah. I mean, if you're early to market, uh, you can have the best solution, but if nobody's buying it, um, you know, maybe it'll go, you know, it'll go early. Like we were in a company called Pertigo and Pertigo was basically uh, a RASP, you know, runtime application software for, um, uh, for Amazon's uh, Lambda. And you know, Pertigo came out. They they, uh, they they were educated in the market. They got an early acquisition, and they went to Checkpoint. So as an investor, I'm happy. But you know, maybe that sort of curve of usage or of, of, of adoption of people who are trying to build security into you know serverless uh, code, that, that, I think that's still a big growing market. So re real quick, Ron, uh, good good to see you. We've spoken a few times in the past, but I don't think we've actually had any FaceTime. So I kind of uh, am glad or we're on Skype here today. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that early exit, not that one in particular, but you know, coming from the vantage point of a VC, the exit timing is, and the impetus for exit could be very different than the uh, than the founding team. Can you talk to talk to me a little bit about what makes an exit good or bad in the eyes of an investor? So I'm going to actually flip that question around and talk about what makes an investment or an exit good in the eyes of the founder. You know, if you're starting a company and and you're told like, hey, you want to be a successful cyber entrepreneur, and and that script was you need to have an idea, you need to recruit a team, you need to raise money, you need to raise a couple rounds, you need to go public someday. Like if that's your vision of a successful entrepreneur, that's you're you're going to be in for disappointment. I mean, the vast majority of companies who start, mm. you know, basically they get acquired or go out of business, and they don't really even break ten million dollars in revenue. So, having said that, if you're a technologist and you love to create technology, as soon as you've got some product market fit, which means you've actually sold the product and somebody has bought it, this might be the best time ever to sell your company because you're you're sort of focusing on the problem, you're focusing on the customer. Now, if you have to go build a build, build a company to support a hundred customers or a thousand customers, now you have to have a different set of skills to do that. You have to hire customer support. You have to maybe raise some capital to build the infrastructure ahead of those customers who are spending money with you. You might have to invest in marketing to raise awareness about how awesome of a, of a technology you are. You might even have uh, copycats 
who take your ideas and put them into other projects, other companies. And now you've got to kind of fight, well, why is mine better, better than theirs? In other words, there's this whole other path you have to go down to build a giant company. Now, if you can do all that, you know, the payoff's great. I mean, the journey I had at Tenable Network Security was, was, was a lot of fun. A, a lot of people go through, you know, different types of, uh, of companies and sell those. But that fifth question I asked, what is your vision of success is really what this all comes down to. Now, having said all that, as an investor, if you know what the founder's vision of success is and it's in alignment with your goals as an investor, well, then you're good to go. But if you invest and you think somebody wants to go big and they sell next week because you know for 2x your investment, you just risked a whole lot of money for a little bit of return. And that's usually where these discrepancies or faults between investors and founders come from. Got it. That that makes a ton of sense. Um, very quickly, in the choice of where to invest, right? Um, so I do a fair amount of investing myself, nowhere near to your size, of course, but I do some cyber investing and there's a certain thing you look for in people that I've never been able to actually put my uh, verbal around, right? Verbally explain. Can you explain what you look for in the founding team? Because I always talk to investors and they're like, you know, especially early investors, what we care about is the founding team, the founding team. What are we looking for in the founding team specifically? Yeah, so when you invest in a company, it's a lot like going on a ride at uh, at an amusement park. Like you can't ride all the rides. There, all of them are not, you know, things that you might find. You might not like a spinning ride. You might not like fast rides. You might you might not like rides with heights. It's the same thing with startups. You know, you might have a preference. Maybe you want to physically see people. You know, even in the time of uh, of COVID, maybe you want to invest regionally. Maybe you want to focus on ex-intelligence community folks, folks from all over the world, ex-Israeli Intel, ex-GCHQ, UK Intel, ex-CIA, FBI, NSA, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe, maybe you really want to do things that are threat-based. Maybe it's a category. Maybe you might want to do threat feed, threat consumption, different things like that. So you have these focuses, and, and I've seen people really, really go through that. But then when it comes to the team, what do you want to see in a team? Do you want to see one founder? Do you want to see five founders? Do you want to see a charismatic leader who's got a social uh, you know, media presence and, and, and speaks well at conferences? Do you want to see the PhD who's behind the scenes and isn't really good with customers? So until you've seen a bunch of different kinds of companies, it's kind of hard to kind of say well, as an investor what you might, uh, what you might like. If uh, folks, are, folks are investing on this, they want to, they want to learn how to invest, it's it's very interesting because on on some deals you have to be an accredited investor, which means you have to say you have a couple million dollars worth of uh, of net worth to do certain types of, of of investments. But there's other things out there. You can actually put money into funds. There's a lot of great seed funds out there that you know a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. You know you might be able to invest in that and and get a look at a hundred companies. You know, and not have to do the meetings themselves. You know, there's kind of if you have a background there, there's, these funds might be able to come in and, and and do that. Lastly, you know, you want trustworthiness. You want to know their goals. Can they communicate? Um, you want to look for potential issues like is there a co-founders? Maybe it's a husband and wife team. Maybe it's two brothers. I always like to talk about how awesome it was to work with my wife. That's not for everybody, you know. So you can pull from all that background and ask people, you know, any questions you want because it's uh, you're going on rides with them all day after that. Yeah, the uh, it's super interesting to me because again, I'm very very interested in in growing my own investment base. But I'll try not to dominate the conversation, Paul. Mm -hmm. I'll let it go back to you after this after this final question. But um, you know, this one might be a little bit of a trickier question. But valuations 
feel like they're off the charts. I can't tell you how many unicorn announcements we've had in the last month alone. Everything from SNCC at four and a half billion, um, Aqua just passed a billion. Um, I don't know. There, there's literally been a half a dozen in the last few weeks. What's your thoughts Exonius. on valuations of cybersecurity? Exonius. What's your thoughts on um, valuations of cybersecurity companies? Are we in a weird cybersecurity bubble? Will this all kind of, uh, you know, I guess, finish itself out in the public market with some SPAC exits. Uh, what are your thoughts on valuations? So a couple couple comments. Uh, Paul did such a great job reading, you know, the news of all these acquisitions and, and announcements and mergers and investments. And if you do that every episode, you're going to have to d- then dedicate five minutes or 10 minutes to that, you know, every, every week. There's a lot to track. Now, having said that, mm-hmm. there is, if you noticed, we're not doing that well in, in cybersecurity. You know, we, we had solar winds. We had a massive Microsoft breach. We have not solved the fundamentals of security engineering, identity management, and the general public really is pretty apathetic. Uh, one of the big things we're trying to do at Google Tech Adventures is raise awareness about cybersecurity outside of cyber. So yes, there's a bubble. We are well in that bubble. The bubble is growing. I don't think it's going to pop, and you're going to see a massive devaluation. Now, markets come and go. They, they, they really do. And right now, I really think the Biden administration is going to be spending a lot of money with, uh, with DHS, with the Department of Defense. They're going to probably pass regulation, which is something the Trump administration did not want to do. That's going to cause commercial vendors to need to spend more money. Uh, my brother is an amazing uh, mechanical engineer at a, at a, uh, a, I'll call it a, a defense industrial based place. Literally like two years ago, he was saying, hey, we got a vulnerability scan. Now he's doing poems. And, and, he's, and, you know, so this is going to affect the entire country and it's going to cause valuations to, to go up. We've just seen our first SPAC announcements. Actually, I think technically the first security SPAC was App, AppGate, mm-hmm. uh, which got spun out mm-hmm. of where uh, Dave Vitell uh, went to. I forget, the, I forget the name. But then IronNet, uh, they just announced that they're being acquired by a SPAC. And it's, it's a weird thing. Like if somebody buys half of your company or more than half, that's technically an acquisition. But the way these SPACs work, it's like this this join merging thing where one day you're not public and, and the next day you are public and you've got a lot more capital on your uh, so iron net. So congratulations to them. You know, you're going to see a lot more of that. So we are in a bubble. The bubble is going to continue to get big because I don't see anything changing. And if you look at the kind of laws that uh, the Congress is trying to pass, none of them have to do with security engineering or solving the problem. It's all more hunting. It's all more hygiene, which don't get me wrong. That's great for CrowdStrike. That's great for Tenable. It's not a bad strategy, but it's not solving the fundamental problems of cybersecurity. So we are going to be in this market for a very, very long time. Ron, how do you see the uh, kind of consolidation of security companies versus new companies coming onto the market and getting getting funded, getting created, and, and entering the market? Do you see that kind of ebb and flow happening for some time, or are we going to reach a point where there's a lot more consolidation than there are new companies coming on the scene? Yeah, so I'm I'm looking at more uh, where where there's friction. So if you look at something like Apple, and you know Apple's got Big Sur, and if you have any customers who are on CrowdStrike, you got to ask them, hey, when is that CrowdStrike agent going to be ready for, for for Big Sur? You know, a lot of products out there, you know, in the name of security, you know, Apple in this case, you know, are they're hard to run on these things. So you have, um, you know, vendors that are sort of at odds with dedicated security companies. So the question is, is what's the long term? You know, if, if you look at something like JMF, for example, mm-hmm. you know, are they going to be always outside of Apple? You know, helping Apple get patched, helping them do authentication, and and they they just bought a great Sysmon like company called uh, 
command sec or CMD security. I apologize to the guys there uh, for not having the name right, but but it's it's um, it, it's really interesting. So the question is, is what would an IBM of cybersecurity look like? Because if you look at like computer associates, there's some amazing cybersecurity technology there. But you know, people would kind of say that's for companies who don't you know aren't at the cutting edge, kind of go to get get acquired. Well. Look at Palo Alto. Palo Alto was just they just acquired what their fourth or fifth you know cloud security company. They started out with Evident IO and they most recently bought uh, Bridge Crew, and and you can see they're very very open to acquiring these different kinds of technology. Is that what the hundred billion dollar cybersecurity company of the world of the future looks like? It's hard to say. If you hear Keith Alexander talk about you know collective defense and what he wants to do with IronNet, you know they're they're talking about really kind of sharing, almost being like a private NSA. For for corporations in 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 cybersecurity, I mean, there's definitely an opportunity for that kind of stuff. As a consumer on the enterprise side, do you do you go with the larger vendors that are consolidating, like Palo Alto, or do you go with point solutions? And and how do you navigate those waters? I I often have a tough time advising enterprises like like what do you do? Because there's some great startups with some great tech, but you can also get a bunch of it in one place. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants. You know, uh, best of breed and, Single and monoculture of glass. until they want to watch YouTube on their classified, you know, mobile device. You know, it's <laughs> it's the needs of the users are are you know they really outweigh security in many in many cases. Um, you know, we're seeing things like well, Firefox. You know, Firefox is coming default doing uh, you know DNS queries over HTTP. Well, is that more secure or less secure than DNS? And am I okay giving all that data to like Firefox? Now change Firefox to Chrome mm. and people are really like, well, I don't know if I trust Google for, for, for these kinds of, of, of things. Yet Google looks a little bit more secure than Office 365 right now. You know, mm -hmm. So it's, it's best to breed and what are we using to protect our, our data? It is so difficult. And, and one of the things I like to do is I like to go into high schools, community college, and talk about the basics of CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and then just start talking about, well, how do you answer those questions on a phone? How do you answer those questions on, on email? You know, how do you answer those kind of questions on a, a Chromebook you know, running a Facebook app? You know, who has access to your data? Who do you trust? Those fundamentals are not there. So in, and until the public really figures that out, it's the Wild West. It, it, we're going to see all sorts of companies coming at this from many, many different angles. You think Microsoft has a strong play in security to displace some of the other players in the security market? Well, I, I secretly believe Microsoft named the Solar Winds hack Solar Winds to to absolve any you know wrongdoing of Microsoft. And it, you know, because if you think about it, every other uh, major breach we've had had some other name, right? It, like Meltdown wasn't the Intel bug; it was the Meltdown bug. Right. Uh, you know, WannaCry wasn't a Microsoft issue; it was it was uh, it was WannaCry. Uh, you know, yeah. a, a Windows bug, right? Mm -hmm. So Microsoft does a lot to help people, but they are also the biggest target. So the question is, what you know, what liability they have as a, as an entity, you know, out there? I mean, they got thousands and thousands of people working on nothing but security. I mean, they're working harder than anybody else. Yet when something you know zero day happens, like in like an exchange. Oof, that's 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 tough. Um, so, are we always going to have third parties who who do things? I think so. And I think if we have a few more solar winds and a few more Office three sixty five attacks, you're going to see some people go. You know what? Maybe I'm just going to run Kube on VMware in my data center, and I'm going to get. I'll build my own cloud of all my resilience, all my elasticity, but I'm going to do it myself. You know, because I mean, Office three sixty five was supposed to be. Trust us. We're going to filter all your mail for you and. 
you know, everything's secure by default and it really isn't going that way. So it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better, but that's opportunity. Anybody starting a company who can solve any piece of that puzzle is going to do fine. It's interesting what you're saying is the, the trust in Microsoft is degrading as we have more of these breaches. I, uh, I, I, um, that's interesting. I mean, I, uh, we all trust these, these vendors. I mean, when you download those updates, you have that's to. trust. You're mm -hmm. trusting them to put the right code on your, on your computer. Now, can that be subverted? Of course. Do they make mistakes? Of course. But you know, it's at, at what point is the trust in the computer and the operating system the same amount of trust that we have in our cars? Like, if you got in your car and it exploded, and 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 you know somebody got you know loss of life or or, or or business risk, we have clear legal laws against that sort of stuff. In cyber, it's still early, early innings. Like mm. nobody really seemed to be that angry that there's thirty thousand exchange servers running on prem. That were completely compromised in probably the biggest cyber espionage, you know, effort ever going ever. There's the public reaction is just hard to, to to do that. On the other hand, you know, our response is kind of pathetic. Hey, we're going to require disclosures. We're going to require more hygiene. It's not going to change anything. So I I think it's really up to vendors and and people like your show and and you know getting the word out that you know you have to fight this fight in many ways on on your own. I want to ask a, a specific question because we've pondered this. Adrian and I are, are looking into attack surface management, uh, both open source and commercial solutions. And we were just wondering, like, why hasn't a big vulnerability management company gone out and acquired an attack surface mapping? It seems like there's a really good marriage there. You're talking about like a like a tenable buy-in, a Shodan, that that kind of thing. Or uh, Adrian, what are some of the ones on our our list? Uh, uh, Randori, Psycognito. Uh, Palo Alto acquired uh, expanse in the space for yep. for eight hundred mm -hmm. million. Yeah, so there's there's two things there. So I mean, Tenable, of course, we can talk all day about. Anytime you want to talk about that hmm. more, it's good good stuff. Go buy Tenable right now. <laughs> um, you know, but if you look at Qualys, Tenable, uh, even like HD's Rumble now, Rapid mm -hmm. Seven, you know, the, the the main default thing is pointing that infrastructure at something you know like a class B network, a bunch of networks, you know, your Amazon VPC, something you know, and then auditing it to find something that you don't know, you know, is the vulnerability, like a lot of people talk about vulnerability management is, you know, the, the vulnerability management vendors are in charge of your program. Actually, the program is there to audit that. You know, if you're, if you're supposed to patch everything by Friday, well, on Friday or on Saturday, if you scan with Tenable and you find a missing patch, guess what? Your processes are wrong and, and that's there. Expanse, Shodan, uh, security trails, mm -hmm. um, um, some of the other uh, good folks in in, in this space, um, they are a little bit different, right? They're mapping the entire internet and they're helping you find things that you didn't even know you had. Uh, if you look at somebody like a, a, a movie theater where you've got a DNS name and a URL for every actor and, 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 and movie and brand, that's hard to, that's hard to find. You know, and and if people are doing uh, phishing research or they're trying to do things, you can't just scan the internet with with Nmap, right, or Nessus, or or even even the the, the bigger cloud, you know, uh, ways to distribute that kind of stuff. It's just not really really scalable. So they're two different things, and you're right, they do go together, but they are very very different use cases. Mm. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Adrian. 
Yeah, so I, uh, you know, just shifting gears a little bit back to the the investment side of things. Uh, curious as to your opinion on on hands on versus hands off approaches for investors. You know, I've noticed uh, particularly with some VCs, um, they're a little bit more hands off, and, and then some VCs are hands on to the point to where you know they're almost involved in assembling the dream team. Uh, you know, and and uh, helping to find a an ideal market, you know, obviously more seed stage vendors and, and uh, are kind of instrumental in, in kind of putting that company on its path and pointing them in the right direction. Yeah. So there's, there's different types of uh, venture capital, uh, you know, organizations out there. You've got some really, really well-funded, well-organized ones. So Insight, for example. So we raise money at Tenable from Insight. Uh, one of our portfolio companies, Inky, uh, raise money from, uh, from from Insight, and when we raise money from 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 Insight Attainable, literally Insight has this amazing internal team of people who track markets, track companies. You, they really understand these markets really really well. But then they also reach out and they talk to people. And I can remember when Insight invested in Tenable. This was you know probably ten years ago. I um, I was getting introduced introduced to like CTOs of motor vehicle companies, and trying to talk about vulnerability management. And it was, it was kind of like this. So I was getting these great introductions, but, but you know, back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, getting a high level introduction like that. Now, shame on me for not, not, not taking advantage, but there wasn't as much raw kind of introduction. Whereas Inky, you know, phishing, I don't care who you are, what level you are, everybody's gotten phishing email. Mm. So when Inky gets an introduction like that, they can, they can do something, something really well. So, you know, a different one would be if you look at something like uh, like ForgePoint. Uh, ForgePoint, they're investors in um, uh, uh, IronNet, for example, and uh, Huntress. They're they're with us. I think you, you guys have talked to Huntress possibly in the past. So they've got like a CISO network, and and the CISO network is is interesting because on one hand you would think you would come in as a vendor and you'd say, oh, I get to get to meet all these chief information security officers that are all going to buy my product, right? Well, the reality is no. You know, most of these people who are, who are volunteering to kind of work with a venture capital firm, you know, they're trying to learn and help, and it's kind of a two-way two-way street. So those are kind of uh, kind of interesting. I think the biggest thing, though, that that a venture capital person brings to these these smaller companies is perspective. What are the other portfolio companies? Are they being approached by SPACs? Are they being approached by private equity firms? Are, is somebody trying to preempt a round? Like you're not fundraising right now. And literally somebody calls and says, look, we know who you are. We know, kind of know your revenue. We talked to some customers. We want to 3X your last evaluation, right? So every dollar amount you raised at, they're willing to come in at a, at a higher thing. So if you have visibility into that kind of stuff, you can share that with the people you've invested in. And it's it's a tough road to walk because sometimes that's NDA level stuff. Sometimes you don't want to, you know, if you hear about a great idea from somebody who pitches you, you can't just like take that and bring it to a, a, a another company, but it, usually there are no original ideas. It's all about implementation. It, it's, it's a great segue, it, you know, as we talk about various solutions and funding and what technologies companies are adopting, uh, companies also need people to implement these solutions. And I think it's a great uh, chance to talk about data care, something that when I first heard the analogy between cybersecurity and healthcare and how healthcare has 
defined roles and usually people don't go oh i want to go get a degree in healthcare and go work in 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 healthcare at that generic level they're like i want to be a nurse i want to be a doctor i want to be a technician you know whatever there's various roles with cybersecurity i feel like we're still stuck ron in oh i want to do cybersecurity so that means like i need to be a ninja i need to know how to program i need to know how to pen test and that's that's not true yeah so the data care is is this concept that we're trying to bring cybersecurity to the general public, which which really solves two big problems that cybersecurity hasn't solved. One is how do we attract more people to this this industry? We've just done a horrible job educating people in school, guidance counselors. You know, what does it mean to go into cybersecurity? Or should you be good at STEM? Should you be good at art? Should you be good at music? Some of the best hackers I know are accountants and musicians, right? So it's it's we've done a horrible job trying to do that. But the, the, the other thing that cyber has done a horrible job at is just educating the general public. The technology, maybe the, you know, maybe the technologies move too fast, maybe the complexity is beyond people, but we do not have things like a Dr. Fauci of cybersecurity. We don't have the equivalent of like wearing masks, you know, for mm-hmm. cybersecurity. Some people say that's patching. Some people say it's just, you know, you gotta have your hygiene, right? But nobody can really define, you know, what, what these things are. So data care is a way to talk about all that without making it seem like it's somebody else's problem or that you have to become a cyber brain surgeon in order to be in be in cyber and there's just so many like like imagine the one person it shop at like the doctor's office or the the automotive dealership imagine him or her like going to defcon and giving a talk on what they do the the cyber industry would like look i I think we're getting better but in, in like years past that would be like, oh no, you would not get on stage. You would not be able to do that, right? So now we're just starting to like uh, getting things like new speakers being coached by old speakers and and uh, that that type of of uh, mentorship. Uh, but for the most part, the cyber industry hasn't been doing that. And I think it's going to take another five, ten years before we really, really start looking something professional like the doctor system or architects or or, or lawyers. You think we need to do a better job with apprenticeship? I hear that that term kind of thrown around, but I think it's different from most people hear that and think of electricians, plumbers, but it has to take a different shape and form in cybersecurity. Yeah. So the the thing with with uh, electricians and plumbers and 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 um, you know doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. is you, you've got pretty much a hundred years of tradecraft where you know water still flows downhill. You know mm-hmm. rule of law is pretty much you know do good to others, don't don't take my stuff. You know, electrical, we've been on 120 volts, you know, for, for, for a while. And there's there's small updates and stuff. And even even like pilots, right? You know, we're not testing out new wings, you know, when, when you're taking a flight on Southwest down to, down to Florida, right? Whereas with cyber, holy cow, right? We went from a computer to a laptop, to a, from a network to wireless, to the cloud, to I think we skipped over data centers there, you know, but mobile, yeah. you know, so, so on one hand, Cyber's barely keeping up with the technology. On the other hand, cyber made the mistake of not building sort of our people to take over for us, you know, and try to think about the technology of the future and the roles of the future. So, you know, I mean, if anybody's out there listening and they're they're running, they're like a CISO and you got a SOC and a compliance team and an IT team, and whatnot, if you're not continually recruiting, if you're not continually training those people and giving them almost from a micromanagement point of view, here's the career path you need to take. One, you're not going to be able to have your your staff, and two, you certainly aren't going to solve the the minority problem, you know, and 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 trying to get more African Americans, more women, more people from all backgrounds, you know, into this into this career field. And so, I just I w- really wish we had, had more focus on that, mm-hmm. and that's why we came up with data care. 
Outstanding. And I, I, th- I think that's a great lead into, um, I, I really enjoyed your grant awards, uh, uh, show that, that you did with, uh, Cindy, uh, maybe a week and a half ago. And, uh, you know, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for you, for you to mention some of what you're doing there, because I personally, I'm, I been, uh, um, intentionally trying to take on more mentees and, and do more mentoring and, and do it in a more structured manner than I've done in the past. So I, I found a lot of those, those grant awards uh, really interesting. And gave I, me a I lot appreciate of you bringing that up. So when, when we look at the problem of cyber, you know, how do we get the right technology, the right policies and the right people, you know, to that it's, it's, it's great to be able to invest and God bless, you know, my wife and I or whatever, that's a little self-serving, but you know, we're happy to give, we're happy to, to, to do that. We could have done that really silently and, and not had a website and not talked about our companies, not trying to be proactive. It's the same thing on the uh, nonprofit side. We could have easily just given and, and not made a big deal out of it and not tried to get a little bit of extra thing because we are trying to be purposeful about drawing more people into this curriculum, talk about the technology, talk about the people, talk about that. And even with the specific you know, opportunity to bring more women, bring more African-Americans, bring more people from all types, you know, into this career field. For our first grant, we really wanted to focus on a, on a problem that I think a lot of people wanted to do in cybersecurity, but didn't really know, you know how do you, you know, how do you go and 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 recruit? Like I've, I've literally talked with cybersecurity people who just aren't used to dealing with like race issues and, 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 uh, you know, sex issues, minority issues. And, and literally, like, I've gotten questions like, okay, can we say Black? Can we say African-American? I'm like, it's okay. Like, you're here. So don't, I mean, anything you do in this space, you're going to get some criticism, just like any type of business. Guess what? You're here to help, right? If, you, if you're mentoring, if you're donating money, if you're, if you're showing up to a predominantly, you know, uh, Black, low economic school, you know, whatever you're doing there, you're giving people an opportunity and I mean, some of this came out of, I, I used to joke, and it's really not a joke, but I wanted to create 10 tenables in Maryland because I really felt that starting a business and growing a business was one of the best ways to kind of engage people outside of cybersecurity. As awesome as tenable is, you know, the thousands of people that who work there, they're not all cybersecurity ninja programmers, right? Mm-hmm. There's lawyers, there's marketing people, you know, there's accountants, there's, there's, there's uh, assistants, there's facilities people. And cyber, you know, really needs a lot of that. And I think it's uh, it's it's an interesting question. If people say, "I want to go into the cyber business," what does that really mean? Like, do you have to be a third level three SOC analyst who can reverse malware in their sleep? Could we use a few more of those people? Absolutely. Do we need like everybody to do that? No. Like, we need people to communicate like why this is a problem in the first place. And we're we're glad you weren't silent about it because we need good examples. You know, we yeah. we need somebody to to lead by example there and and show the rest of the industry. You know, here here's a way to do that. You know, here's a way to introduce more people and to, you know, uh, kind of sponsor people that are that are already interested in getting into it. So we had we had three winners. We had uh, Girl Security, uh, we had N Power, and we had a Black Cybersecurity Association. And, and I say that they were the winners. We got really, really good applications to the grant and, and everybody's doing something like, no, we never got a grant and said, wow, that's, that's, those guys don't know what they're doing. Everybody's doing something. So it was really hard to pick our finalists and to pick some winners, but the ones who stood out was very unique. I mean, girl security was very focused on young black women. Not only did they teach cyber, but they taught uh, national security strategy. You know, NPower had an existing program where they were teaching basically IT fundamentals in seven different 
states, cities, you know, that, that type of thing. And they had cyber in two of them and they wanted to expand cyber to all seven of those, those places, which was awesome. And then finally the black cybersecurity association was, was just probably the most comprehensive um, one that we've looked at because they did everything from capture the flag events for, you know, predominantly black, you know, young, young uh, kids, K through 12, all the way to like building like a, a, a mentorship network for, for professionals, which was just, and they had a lot of partnerships and it was just really, really well done. Anybody who wants to check them out, uh, go to gula.tech and you can see our winners. And we're going to have a lot of them on our, on our uh, Gula Tech Cyber Fiction show. I've, in, I've uh, encouraged them to get more uh, involved, perhaps with your guys' organization and, you know, talk about what they're doing. Absolutely. And Ron, tell us what Gula Tech Cyber Fiction, is that a, a YouTube show, a podcast? What's the focus? So we, uh, what we do there is it's, uh, it's our show. We put up a studio in the house. We've got a lot of folks in the, the DC, Virginia, Maryland area come by. And what we try to do is just do like a one hour, typically me, sometimes it's me and Cindy, uh, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. And the idea there is to not only talk about stuff like this with folks from cyber, but to really make an effort to reach outside of uh, the cybersecurity industry. So we had some of these people we've had on are a little bit more in the famous column than, than not. So we had Sid Meier, who was the uh, author of uh, Civilization, wrote a lot of video games. We talked about why aren't there you know, any great cybersecurity video games. We had uh, Charlie Bolden. Uh, he was the first, uh, one of the first black astronauts and he ran NASA for a bunch of years for President Obama. We also had uh, the cast of MacGyver. So we actually had uh, the full cast of MacGyver. If you've watched MacGyver on CBS, they've hack hacking is a, a really interesting uh, thing. So we're trying to reach out. So we got a couple NFL football players coming on and uh, we're going after some musicians and stuff, but we're supplementing that with our portfolio founders and mm -hmm. folks from the industry, uh, with folks from our Gula Tech uh, Foundation uh, advisory board. And uh, so we're having a lot of fun getting that, uh, getting people on air, talking about cybersecurity in a lot of different ways. Fantastic. Check it all out at agula.tech. Ron, always nice to speak with you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy your future in the data care industry and keep up the, the great work. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back with the Enterprise Security News. Stay tuned. Do you worry about ransomware, data breaches, reputation damage, especially from phishing attacks on employees working from home? The facts are top cloud security tools have a 15% failure rate. 51% of phishing is social media based. Pixum knows because Pixum detects and stops breaches at point of click. Pixum's AI real-time solution detects actual fraud happening in a browser and stops it. Know your real security gaps. Get a phishing actualization test free at securityweekly.com forward slash Pixum. That's P-I-X-M. Searching for the best way to protect passwords and privileged accounts? Thycotic empowers security and IT operation teams to discover, secure, and manage all types of privileged accounts with the fastest time to value of any privileged access management solution. Get up and running fast with solutions for privileged account discovery, turnkey installation, automation, auditing, and reporting tools with Thycotic's free 30-day trial. Thycotic, the fastest growing PAM provider in the market, available both on-premise and in the cloud. Get started today with a free Thycotic secret server trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Thycotic. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. If you have a specific guest or topic you'd like us to cover on one of the upcoming shows, go to securityweekly.com forward slash guests, fill that out, and we review those on a regular basis. 
Also, our, our next live webcast is tomorrow, March 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure you register for that. Prepare your Linux host for unexpected threats or maybe expected threats. Who knows? Securityweekly.com forward slash webcast. We're going to get Linux and nerdy. And if you want to check out the archive, go to securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. All righty. Lots of funding announcements as we've hinted towards. Uh, I think Adrian and I did a really good job covering all of them in our notes. So they're all there if you want to go read about it. And we'll talk about uh, most of them right now. Let's do it. Oh, the interesting thing was, did we find three cybersecurity insurance companies that got funding? Three. Yep. That's <clears throat> astonishing for so many reasons. It is a total of 17 companies today. There were so many companies. I created a spreadsheet. That's also in the show notes. You can go check out that spreadsheet right now if you just mm -hmm. want to, you know, sum up uh, all those 17, see what it looks like. Uh, you know, spoiler, they add up to just over a billion dollars. Nice. Oh, so it was, a, it was a light week. Right. <laughs> Nothing to it. Oh, one of them is Cowbell Cyber, which I just thought. I think, Adrian, you said someone's a Saturday Night <laughs> yeah. Live fan or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Either we always that need or, more uh, cowbell. Yep. Either that or Will Ferrell's an investor. Something. They raised $20 million. <laughs> Yeah, which is small compared to the other ones. Corvus raised 100 and Coalition Insurance raised 175 so Apparently, cybersecurity insurance is hot. It's taken off. Yeah, what, what switched? Why did it switch? I think it's just taken to this point to where it's become a distinctive enough um, insurance product, you know, to have specialized companies in it. Because I, I remember I went to Jeremiah Grossman used to have these cyber insurance uh, breakfasts at uh, uh, once a year at these different events, and um, and it was very much like like insurance companies had no actuarial tables; they had no way. Um, you know, to, to figure out really what this product should look like, you know, how, how they should, uh, how they should price it out, how they should charge for it. Uh, so there was a lot of guessing going on in the early days. And I'm assuming at this point, you know, if, if these three companies are specializing in it, uh, they've, they've got a more nuanced product, like they or better idea of what they're doing. Uh, on, honestly, I, I don't know too much about specifically what these three companies are doing. The um the cowbell one says that it's an AI powered one, which leads me to believe that maybe there's finally enough actuarial data within records lost, impact, you know, dollars, et cetera, that they're able to make educated guesses and and use AI to pull in a bunch of feature vectors and and determine what the risk level is and properly ensure each bet. Maybe that's the difference. I actually know some folks in that market, and I think that would make an interesting segment. Uh, be interesting to hear back from some of our listeners, see if they'd be interested in a cyber insurance segment. Absolutely. Duly noted. Uh, what else in, in funding? Herasoft looks to stop ransomware attacks. A $5 million Series A, which is kind of a small Series A. Oh, what I thought was interesting was, no, this isn't a Silicon Valley-based startup. It's not an Israeli-based startup. It is uh, Bart Bartlesville, Oklahoma. <laughs> where they're from. Wow. Yeah. And, and locally funded too, led by United Capital Management of, of Kansas. Kansas. Well, you know, close. Close. Pretty close to Pretty Oklahoma. Close. Right. The, but it says at the bottom of that one, the platform is anchored to Bitcoin. 
and can help provide both data and application security. So are they coming at it from the dollars and cents side of the equation as opposed to the protection of the actual attacks? It, there was some usage of cryptocurrency type technology to help secure the data in the application like buried in this article which is interesting that they're like us-based funded by us-based it's cryptocurrency so it's not even it's like something a little more bleeding edge than you would uh typically see across the board uh and then funded right here in the u.s it's interesting yeah with a with a quote baby series a of five million yeah baby yeah it's almost almost like a seed these days Mm. five million it's interesting. They say the platform was spun out of Anthem Gold, a cryptocurrency that allows users to buy gold with blockchain technology. You know, so it's we're going to have some new categories here, I think, because some of the other ones uh, that have funding here this week, I think at least one of them is uh, a, a uh, cybersecurity startup entirely focused on protecting uh, cryptocurrency. You know, so we're we're starting to see new categories here, I think. That's good. What else we got for funding? We got Coalition Harrisoft, <laughs> Cowbell. Things. Got a lot. We got a few. Let's go. Uh, keep we going. almost have to do like a speed round. <laughs> we do. Autonomous breach protection startup Cynet. They raised forty million and hired Chris Roberts. Yep, <laughs> which is awesome. Good for them. Uh, I, 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 you know, uh, Ron uh, mentioned it in his segment as well. I like the breach and attack. Uh, simulation uh, segment a lot. I think it's uh, it's grown from its infancy where everyone's like, wait, what is that? Is that just automated pen testing to now being a solidified category that's getting funding? There's acquisitions, newer players to the market. So I think I'm glad to see it solidified as a category. My favorite thing about this category is is the use case of validating your other security products. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, you know, disclaimer, I used to work for, uh, my, my company was actually acquired by a uh, breach and attack simulation company, um, because we provided some services that actually use their products. And, and one of the key things, uh, one of the key services we provided was to see if your MSSP is listening, paying attention, yep. uh, to see if your products are configured correctly. Um, you know, so we, we put together a, a bunch of automated tests to be able to find that out very quickly and see, you know, not, not just the products themselves, would they see it, but are your people going to see those, you know, are you running into the, the classic target issue of, well, yeah, the, the security products saw it, but the people didn't, or, mm-hmm. or they didn't, they didn't respond to it. So hey, I think it's an important market. Adrian, given your depth of analysis in that market and where you come from, is that, is that a evolutionary layer on top of penetration testing and potentially bug bounty turning it into attack simulation, or is it truly a revenue revolutionary market disruption? I I don't think it's disrupting anything. I think it is a, a new uh, market, and and I think it's the way you're going to use it. I think it'll change how penetration tests are delivered. So evolution. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think it replaces penetration tests, really, because you, you still don't have a human behind there. You know, really what a lot of these tools are doing is on a daily basis, you know, not only checking to make sure your stuff is configured correctly, but ongoing monitoring them by running these tests over and over and over to make sure, um, you know, that, uh, you know, those configurations stay that way. It's interesting the intersection between attack surface management, vulnerability management, and breach and attack simulation. Yeah. 
Because right now yeah, you've I mean, got to you've got to integrate to get all those things. I don't know of any company that's doing all three of those yeah, things no. at least particularly well. I don't know. It's sounds like a it's also sounds new. like a PE roll up opportunity to me. Yeah, or MSSP sure, yeah. service or something, right? Because I, I think those are three crucial categories. If I'm defending an enterprise, I want those things. Like you're saying, Adrian, there's basically automated processes that are just constantly crawling and de uh, detecting those exposures or conditions that need attention. The problem becomes is how do you prioritize though? Right. <laughs> then you're going to go to Kenna. So like now how many uh, yeah. vendors are we integrating together to be able to basically have automated systems, which aren't catching everything obviously, but just telling me if there's drift, if there's some kind of exposure and managing the process to fix it on an ongoing basis. And it's all about these operational fundamentals. You know, uh, Ron mentioned that, you know, there's still a lot of fundamental issues that aren't solved, mm. but even for ones that are solved, um, you know, there, there are more things we need to ensure that we're doing those correctly. Yep. Walk before we run. Something like that. Uh, interesting Docker raised $23 million. We talk about <laughs> like all these raises and Adrian and I are like, wait, why is it like Docker created containers or was really early on, obviously. I actually don't know the, the history of what what led it there. There's other container technologies, obviously, other than Docker, but uh, kind of interesting that their raise was Series B of $23 million. I, I think they lost a lot of steam at some point. You know, like Google jumped in with, with uh, Kubernetes mm. and... Uh, and, and and really, you know, there's a bunch of free stuff out there that essentially Docker was charging for. So I, I don't know the full story. Yeah. I, I haven't really tracked it. And then there was um, Swarm. But, like, do you remember Swarm? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like that was, it's funny now that we say, do you remember Swarm? Like Swarm was supposed mm -hmm. to be the, the Kubernetes. But like you said, Google kind of knocked yeah, the, it out of the park. The thing about Docker is they they got chewed up by by others. So when mm. you say Docker, everybody thinks Docker containers, the container itself. But really, what Docker was was supposed to be the pipeline that manages and runs the containers. Mm -hmm. And so the containers were conceptually, or the con concept of the container was conceptually free, and the management platform around it. And they just got dominated by competitive yeah. pressures. Yeah, Pri well, the, private the, registry. Yep, the you cloud know, providers can, really ate their lunch, right? Yep, and gave people an, an offering in all the three major cloud providers to run your containers. Yep. So now here today, we've got Aqua Security announcing 135 million in Series E funding, and Docker <laughs> announcing 23 in a Series B. Like it, it's just so crazy that you know, you know, a Aqua when Aqua came about, you know, Docker was just revolutionizing the space and, and popularizing it. And now, you know, they're raising, you know, I don't know how many times, five, six times the, the amount of money. But the addressable market is larger because if you're Docker, yep. if you're Docker. If you're Aqua, it doesn't, hey, wherever you're running your containers, we exactly. can help you secure them. And that's more, more companies. So how do, you, how do you feel if you are uh, A, um, Twistlock or B, uh, Palo Alto in this particular case and thinking of what they paid for Twistlock five years ago, four years ago, and Twistlock was dominating Aqua in market at that time. Mm. And gosh, if I was the Twistlock founders and I exited that early now, I'd be kicking my own ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a, a for Palo Alto, a fairly small acquisition, wasn't it? Less than 200? I think it was closer to four, four, four or five. But even so, okay. like, that's probably a billion, billion five in today's market. And that's just four or five years later. So Palo Alto's got to be like, yeah, we got a great deal. Yeah, a there. deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. All right, four ten. Uh, more funding. Cyware did a Series B. Cyware is virtual cyber fusion. I had not seen this term before. I thought it was some pretty interesting marketing. Virtual cyber fusion. They message on a next generation SOAR and threat intelligence. The only company building virtual cyber fusion centers to enable end-to-end threat intelligence, automation sharing, and unprecedented threat response. Cyber fusion makes me hungry. Right? I want a cyber fusion meal. It's like Asian fusion or something, right? <laughs> exactly. Is that like shawarma? I've always wanted to try it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, my, my mind, uh, my dad's actually an engineer and is working on, the, uh, on a full-scale uh, uh, fusion uh, project uh, called Eater. And uh, so my brain goes to like uh, alternative uh, to fission, to, mm. to nuclear right. power generation. Just because, just because my dad is involved with that, but um, yeah, yeah, what, get, what does it actually mean? I have no idea, but they got thirty million dollars <laughs> in a Series B. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, to me, it sounds like XDR. It sounds like uh, yeah. you know the you know, just the the combination of of multiple types of uh, detection and response technologies, and uh, you know, they're also talking about are they an MSSP? I I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, there uh, was an XDR <laughs> one in there. I'm not sure where, yeah. where, which one was that. Technical I'm not sure. Um, the XDR that was that was um, was that not Sinet? Does Sinet not do XDR as well? Yes, yeah, Sinet yeah, XDR. Sinet mm-hmm. is autonomous XDR. Interesting. Yep. It's very confusing. Uh, Rumble raises five million in VC funding. Now we yeah, had HD of, on the show. He was like, "No, we're not talking about any any funding stuff." I was like, "That's cool." Like a lot of companies are, are at a stage where they're like, "No, it's not." You know, not talking about it. I was curious where you found this one. Everybody's talking about funding stuff. I mean, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't happen. Um, but um, yeah. Any, HD and the amount of traction he's getting and the amount of press he's getting, you know, there's no way you you can't talk funding. You may be saying no a lot, but uh, but they're knocking at the door. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not not well, terribly. I, I really like it. the technology too. Like I I've used it and it's really awesome actually. And and he's really efficient. I mean, HD is yeah. is like ten people mm-hmm. in one. Mm-hmm. You know, so so five million is a lot for HD for anything that HD is. Yes, doing. exactly. I agree with that assessment wholeheartedly. <laughs> what else uh in funding that's interesting? Yeah, honestly, I spent so much time putting together like uh just finding more and more of these that I, I didn't have a chance to dive to super dive in. deep into yeah. Vulcan Cyber Vulcan Cyber uh has done some stuff with us too. Uh really great team and cool tech. They got a twenty one million dollar series B. Uh congrats yep. to the team. Uh, yeah, I think that's also a uh you know, we talked about uh Exonius and Wild Ventures. Uh, Exonius was uh one of the companies that they uh funded early on and I, I believe Vulcan is as well. And acquisitions, interesting. Wait, before before oh, we go sorry. to acquisitions, yep. what's the deal? Wiz? 
130 million Series B to reach 1.7 billion valuation now. What is Wiz? Wiz.io. Yeah, Wiz. They, they, I, I don't because they just announced 100 million to reach one. Right. Uh, this this article shocks me. Yeah, yeah. This is less than a year from the 100 million Series A. The 100 wow. million Series A was a couple months ago. And they took uh, nine months. Ser- yeah. And they took a Series B at what? No, no, no. So nine months after they were founded, they took a Series A. Wow. And oh. that was a few months ago. And now that looks like they're saying this article says they've raised an additional 130 at 1.7. Wow. That's a crazy. And I can't, I can't imagine that's true in just two months unless they were, because I, I have a general idea what their revenue rate is and I'm not going to say it on air, but let's, let's, let's suffice it to say that the multiple is insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think this has got to be an error. Privacera announced a $50 million Series B, and they're essentially in the same market, it looks like, you know, like a single pane of glass for all your your cloud security stuff. Right. Yeah, so that's what Wiz is touting. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can make these raises kind of um, confusing on the surface because you don't know if that Series B is buying out uh, some investors from Series A, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it doesn't always necessarily mean that 100% of that money is going in, into the company's coffers to to build the company. Right. You know, sometimes right. it's and it's a a, a buyout. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and sometimes it's like that that 130 could just be an additional 30 on top of the 100 that they already had. And they decided and that, to play up the. Uh, <laughs> well, either the play it up or the reporter misunderstood the information. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But especially because this is the first, I didn't see this report on any of my feeds. I saw it on your list just now. And that's why I'm like just amazed at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's definitely. Worth a, a closer check. I'll see yeah, if, we'll uh, dig into it. Yeah, we'll yeah. I, sh- I shall research for next week. Sweet, lot yeah. of a- lot of acquisitions too. Lookout by CypherCloud. I thought Lookout was mobile app. They are, and you know they they've kind of dipped into enterprise. You know they do a lot of consumer. Um, I, I don't I don't know what the revenue split is there, but they're definitely consumer and enterprise. Mm. Um, yeah, and this one struck me as a bit odd too, a bit outside their their wheelhouse. It says accelerating endpoint to cloud security. Lookout acquires CypherCloud. That's what it says on Lookout's website. CypherCloud was uh, I couldn't find a deal amount for this, but CypherCloud was one of the few in, kind of in that Caspi space tokenization uh, space that didn't get acquired. You know, along with uh, BitSight right. and Netscope, I think are are still private and out there. You know, so there are three or four big ones that that didn't get acquired, and CypherCloud was one of them. And it's interesting to note, and it's hard to keep track of, but this is CypherCloud will operate under the Lookout brand and leadership. And that that can be like if you were if you have CypherCloud or you were researching it, and then now they're not going to talk about that anymore because it's under the Lookout brand. But if you yeah yeah maybe it's a asset acquisition. You know th- this 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 could be. Um, you know, th- this could be just a uh, an estate sale. Yep, I'd imagine it was fairly distressed. Yes, 
Yeah, yeah. usually when the yeah it says right in the original uh, official announcement that that's the way the brand is going to go. So yeah, my impression been around way too long to to not be under pressure for exit mm-hmm. from VCs. Gotcha. Yeah, my impression was they they had a hard time holding on to well just get deals going. You know, I heard uh, you know rumors about you know six, nine, twelve month uh, implementations. You know, just just taking forever to get going, and and uh, anytime the uh, you know the SaaS product that that you're encrypting data into changes, you know, they they weren't real quick on on updating with that. So, <clears throat> you know, t- tough product to use um, uh, from from what I heard. Uh, Sonotype acquires MuseDev. And MuseDev is automatically analyzing and uniquely accurate feedback on each developer pull request, making it easy to find and fix security performance and reliability bugs. I thought it was interesting that they had deep enough tech in that kind of narrow focus for Sonotype to acquire them. Yeah, um, I, I'm pretty intimate with that deal in in the sense that I ran corporate development for Sonotype before mm. I left there. Um, the 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 um the Muse guys are just really 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 bright guys. Stephen McGill, the CEO there, uh, PhD, really really knows his stuff. And they made a really interesting broad platform for integrating application security technologies in directly into the GitOps model yep. that I've been pushing for a while. And Sonatype recognized the value of it to give them a breadth of um, a breadth of services that go beyond what they do today for SCA and allow them to freshen up a GitOps model and freshen up more of a cloud solution. So I think it's a, it's a natural acquisition there. And I think that'll be a good fit for Sonatype. That's awesome. I'm very tempted to make a DevSecOps clippy joke, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sumo Logic acquires DF Labs. DF Labs, has, has, they were a sponsor uh, for a while on the show. Uh, they got their start in uh, forensics, kind of pivoted into the SOAR market. I thought they had really great uh, products uh, in Sumo Logic, right? which is you know natural, probably Sumo Logic. Super natural some, combination, yeah, right? Like they're yeah. adding some SOAR capability there for sure. Yeah, I think Log Logrhythm it was uh, started uh, moving. I mean, Sim started moving into SOAR really in the early 2010s. Yeah, became a feature, and looks like Sumo Logic just basically bought that feature, which good for yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, Acronis acquires Synapsis. I just wanted to point that out there. There's some name interesting things. It's a MSS, uh, MSP um, in South Africa. But I didn't want people to get confused and think Synopsis different. Because I read it at first and I thought it was Synopsis. Uh, same, like, same here. Right? Same I was like, here. oh, no. So don't read that wrong. Yeah, it's not Synopsis. It's Synapsis. Gotcha. And based on our track record of geography as well, you can see why we're also confused. (laughs) 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 And uh, not familiar with synapses. But again, that uh, headline is in there. That's that's okay, because apparently I'm really not very good at including... um, including the articles in our in our show notes, because I'm looking through the articles I included and I see two that are non-funding acquisition related at all, and one that's not even cybersecurity related. So clearly, I don't know how to operate our, our own tools. No, but it's interesting you say that. When I uh, I actually removed 
two or three different ones that after I read them, I was like, oh, wait, that's not cybersecurity. But it came up in like my cybersecurity kind of related uh, feeds. So I got rid yeah, of Yeah, the one I'm talking about in particular is Stripe closing $600 million at a $95 billion valuation. I have no idea why I included that, but that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, we, we talked a little bit about the IronNet uh, SPAC deal. I don't know if we want to add anything on there. It's kind of interesting because it's one of the few SPACs. I don't know if we covered SPACs on this show or not. I think we did. Yeah, I think a couple shows ago we had another uh, SPAC-related mm. acquisition. Um, and, and yeah, Ron Gula mentioned it, and uh, it seems like it's it's going to become more and more common. Yeah, because uh, it's like it, a it's, weird thing, right? Like I basically create a shell company. And mm-hmm. then that shell company is public, and then I acquire another company, and instantly they're public. Yep. Well, yeah, well so and you left you you left a step out of uh, you know crap load of people invest in the invest shell company, shell having company. no idea what it's going to be doing in be. the future. Yeah, I just think you the know, whole the whole thing of is trust kind of there. it's weird and shady, in my opinion. Yeah, there's yeah, no there's no S one period where you get to nope. read through the company financials. It just one day, it's just guess what you invested in. You know, I, I don't know, uh, a marijuana company. <laughs> Who right. knows? Yeah, so a SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Mm-hmm. SPAC, yeah, Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's exactly like you described it. It's a shell company that takes investment um, from privately held investors. They go public, they take in public money, and then they go buy a company. They do other things called pipes, which can add additional funds to the purchase before the purchase occurs. Um and so I'm I'm personally invested in a handful of SPACs, and it is the thing is most of the SPACs are supposed to have a general idea of what they're looking for. We're mm, a SPAC okay. looking for a fintech. There's some player, guidelines. Yeah. Cybersecurity player, yeah. Um, and or uh, in the case of one of them that I'm actually in, it's a it's a marijuana player, right? And so they they do at least give you that much to go on. Um, but at the end of the day, it's 100% pure speculation. I think we've reached uh, chief SPAC level right now because most of the SPACs I'm in are down about 30 to 40% from where I put mm-hmm. my money in. So clearly, I'm a good investor. You mean your um, your marijuana SPAC isn't high? It's not high. <laughs> sadly. sadly. I think what I did there, I think what I might have done there is bought high and sold low. <laughs> or bought while you were high, maybe. That's what and I was implying. Then, then you came down from it. Oh, then then I went, oh, that was dumb. Sell low. <laughs> Good job, Paul. Good job. Hey, you know, yeah. so every once in a while. Um, <laughs> well done. So I know we're not talking about, and this is not uh, acquisition or money related, but you guys see that Molson Coors beer operations halted by hack? No. No. I I didn't even get into the depth of the article, but Molson Coors had to stop their factories from making Molson beer due to a hack. Literally, that's the depth of the details, but that freaks me out because if I can't get my Coors Light, we got a problem. You know what's funny? And then there's people that, that can still go on and drink beer, so we're all good. <laughs> Gustav, you hear that? You hear that, Gustav? I like, I like water. You like water. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've been doing some mentoring sessions with uh, with uh, one of our staff uh, uh, behind the camera, behind the mics, uh, Gustav. And uh, you know, I decided for one of our mentoring sessions, we we're going to play with Showdown and look for uh, brewery equipment that was un- unprotected and just on the internet. Oh, that's interesting. And lo and behold. Found well, some yeah, so we know what really happened here. It was, it was not us. You guys it was not, breaking it was not the us. Brewery. 
That's at least not said. during our mentoring session. I, I can't vouch for what Gustav did Gustav, after after we we're coming uh, after, after you. Disconnected. At least you will have a difficult time proving it. <laughs> uh, uh, and do we, there's a lot of funding and acquisitions, uh, even more that we didn't cover, but. So another interesting, you know, we were talking about uh, Chris Roberts, yeah. uh, his, his move there. Another move that I, I dropped into my show notes was uh, the Kindervag, as as many call him. Yeah, he uh, was at Palo Alto. Yeah, so he was a he was well known. Uh, you probably knew him, uh, Tyler. Uh, I did. Yeah, very well. At, 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 yeah, at I know Forrester. John as well. Yeah, he was a Forrester. Was it Forrester when I was at Tenable? We did a webcast together mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Famous for coining the zero t- trust right. uh, term, you know, and, and kind of uh, popularizing it and, and championing uh, uh, both the philosophy and the term. You know, he's uh, continuing on that journey, left Palo Alto, joining a company, uh, MSSP, called Ontoit, hmm. uh, O-N number two IT, which it seems more like a like a zero trust consulting firm than an MSSP. I don't, I don't really understand what the company's doing, but... He, he's he's joined it, and that's uh, um, his his new home. Hmm. Cool, interesting move. Um, oh, there was a startup that, and so now I'm also trying to find startups that are coming on the scene. Uh, so a startup called Argon has exited stealth mode. They seamlessly connect to the existing CI/CD pipelines. Uh, it's agent list and maps the development environment, assets, and user activities. Kind of interesting. Have not heard of them. Obviously, they just came out of stealth and just happened to see the announcement today. Uh, code tampering detection technology. That's kind of interesting. So does that help the solar wind supply chain stuff? Maybe. Or more of the traditional, at least potentially the traditional supply chain, like um, the SCA, software composition analysis style supply chain attacks where I poison like a Java library, and then it gets distributed into 10 other libraries and eventually into 100 projects. Right. There is, I was also thinking of that. Have you heard of JScrambler before? Mm-hmm. The obfuscation, Java obfuscation tool. Yeah, and they kind of like seed your JavaScript so you can see where else it's running and it actually can pre- prevent it from running and stuff like that. I also kind of thought of it in that light as well, perhaps. Java hardening. Hmm. Could be interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's concepts of putting canaries in your code also. You know, things that, that would trigger, you know, if it's uh, viewed in a certain way, you know, or if somebody tries to uh, reverse engineer it, you know, it was actually a use case for canary tokens, you know, is to, yeah. you know, put some uh, some fake uh, AWS keys and things like that in there. ArcSan's been doing that for a long time, too, with the both the hardening from the outside layer where it obfuscates and stops reverse engineering or at least raises the bar for reverse engineering. But they've also gotten to the point where they have done internal canary style things and uh, phone home code and things like that into their hardening systems. What's interesting with JavaScript, though, if it runs in a browser and you're selectively like removing it via a proxy, can the application detect that? The companies that are, are doing that? I thought of JScrambler when I, uh, my friend Bob was looking at JavaScript code for a web application and just selectively running what uh, JavaScript code you can run. Like in, in Burp Suite, for example, you can just take a box and it's like, oh, we'll turn off all field validation. And it's a, basically a regular expression as it's passing through the proxy. It's just stripping out code. I'm like how it'd be kind of interesting to be able to detect that particular scenario. But it's hard because... 
you're not running your code on your server anymore. You're giving it to the user to run in their browser. And then it's kind of, if I'm stripping out the intelligence in your application that is looking for that stuff, then you have no visibility as to how I'm running your application. Yeah, it looks like it's it's uh, not quite that niche. Looking at the Argon's website, it looks yeah. like it's um, um, Argon delivers the first unified security solution for your development infrastructure. So it looks more like some SaaS stuff, you know, some pipeline integration, um, you know, stuff we've definitely seen before. It came up when, you know, my friend Bob was talking about being able to cut the line to register for a vaccine in any case. <laughs> <laughs> how you might accomplish that. Yeah, yeah, tune in for the for the Heroku conversation. That's next week. Right? Yes, that was one where I, uh, I I was legitimately trying to register people for vaccines getting errors and it came back with like all the different technologies and I was like, "Oh, they're using Heroku." I'm like, "I know someone that works there, so we should talk about like how the, that's the the kind of the flip side of it is when you deploy your application, how do I know it's still running securely?" So not necessarily in the user's browser, but when I deployed in my CICD pipeline, like what changes is it going through and what protections and notifications do I get? Let's just say I use the example of I put a lot of security around my container, you know, back to Aqua security, but somewhere down the line, a site reliability engineer has a problem and goes, oh, let me just run that with dash dash privileged. And that just opens up a whole can of worms and undermines the security I put inside the container. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, along those lines, bot uh, mitigation certainly plays into if you want to stand up a website that does things like registers people for unemployment or vaccines, as we've seen very popular in times of COVID, Casada uh, has made some announcements, a 15 times increase in client interrogation sensors, uh, stealthy automation tools, proprietary obfuscation, uh, all kinds of fun stuff to disrupt bots, which I think just can't get enough attention today. Again, if you think about if I came to you both and said, hey, next week we're going to open up a site where people can register for something and thousands of people are going to hit it all at once. Like, okay, go. You got a week. Like bot detection should be, I think, something that's just inherently built into the app or the platform. Yeah, should be standard. Should be table stakes, right? Why, why, yeah. Especially when so. municipalities are trying to you know, even work with partners to stand this stuff up. I think it should be table stakes. Well, it, it, you know, that's the problem that Ron was talking about earlier. He was talking about all these other industries that are professionalized, you know, like mm. like you have to be licensed to be an electrician, you know, because right. mostly safety, Yes. you know, and, and cars have to meet, uh, you know, uh, certain standards, you know, crash uh, standards and mm-hmm. uh, certain standards to be on the road. And uh, we've got to eventually get there uh, with uh, uh, software products and security products. Yeah, it's much harder, though. Yeah, I, I mean the the rate of change. Yeah, is is tough. And yeah. how and where it runs. You know, like I said, you've got your your cloud platform, the server side, the client side, in in all a mix of technologies yeah. across you know all of those different uh, endpoints, if you will. Uh, but we we've some we've seen some movement there. There is that uh, California law. I don't remember the mm-hmm. the number for it. Um, you know, but uh, basically said no more default passwords. You know, your product has to go through some process that results in a unique password. Right. It's a step in the right direction. For like an IoT product, like your Netgear router or whatever. Definitely a step in the right direction. Oh, uh, along those lines, Rapid7 announces a new release of T-Cell for Amazon CloudFront. So uh, it starts off, my quote was to help with this problem, but 
basically the the problem is visibility into things like lambda, right? Um, yeah. And so their T cell CloudFront agent leverages lambda edge, lambda at edge, to help push security closer to the edge without requiring any code changes to your applications. So you can integrate directly with Amazon CloudFront. Um, using Lambda Edge to monitor inbound and outbound traffic with minimal performance impact without requiring your traffic to go somewhere else for inspection. Tyler, I know you follow this space, you know, very closely. I thought this was a really super innovative announcement from Rapid7. I mean, they actually did a really good job explaining it in that, in that one little blurb, right? <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a very in innovative announcement. What's interesting to me is where this positions rapid seven against new against competition that they're not traditionally fighting against right right so this is going to position them against signal sciences inside of um yep. fastly this will position yep. them against um Previty and um, which yep. is inside of uh, Imperva, it'll position them against Akamai. It'll position them against um, Cloudflare. This is not an area where Rapid Seven has traditionally played. No. So it's going to be interesting to see how they can handle this from a, a go-to-market marketing as well as additional development side. Mm. I actually think the development side will probably be fine given the T cell acquisition. But can the Rapid Seven brand bridge the gap into those spaces right. against players that are much larger than them? In those areas yeah because i mean rapid seven has the the app scanner side but that's different where I mean, we're talking about developers DevSecOps type people which yeah. are different from yeah. your web scanner market very so, very so different is this coming out of an acquisition you know yeah t-cell uh, was the acquisition t-cell was into the acquisition. okay seven. i missed and that t-cell t-cell previty signal sciences uh ah, immune okay. immunio immune immunio yeah immunio yeah. yeah we all we all were the early rasp crew right Right. Gotcha. But okay. serverless functions is a difficult aspect to it's a deal with. In, yeah, to deal with in, in those RASP vendors. Yeah, and they all deal with it differently. Yeah, you can't, you know, traditionally RASP, uh, most RASP vendors uh, ran as an agent. You know, I, I, I used to jokingly call it uh, endpoint security for your web server. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, obviously you can't do that with serverless. Um, let's see. There was another one in here. Casada, I got. Uh, it's getting hard to find things. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I know we need we need some better technology to help sort <laughs> these uh, things together, right? And, and deduplicate to and, some point. And deduplicate. I thought I had more prod. Oh, Aqua Security is also in. So they are uh, now their security platform protects high density workloads on ARM based infrastructure. And I'm, I'm assuming they're going after IoT, but it also said ARM-powered hosts on cloud infrastructure edge and IoT. Uh, AWS Graviton2 are instances from AWS that I'm assuming are ARM-based uh, instances, which is kind of interesting that Aqua would, I, I think, pretty early to market in there. Although I'm not sure what your ARM-based devices would be doing in the cloud. There's got to be some specific applications for that and enough for Aqua to make an investment in it. Yeah, Tyler, I, I I don't I know there's uh, use cases. You know, IBM does some uh, naturally has some PowerPC, um, mm -hmm. you know, ba based uh, bare metal and 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 cloud uh, cloud stuff. Uh, and, and I've seen ARM. You know, I don't know if it's if it's mostly like mining and blockchain type stuff or uh, yeah. I, I'm, so not I, I'm not I'm not. I think there's a couple things specific here, right? Is um, 
mobile and IoT mm-hmm. are naturally going to be ARM-based more often than not. And I think uh, Adrian just hit on it here, is anything that's doing highly compute-intensive um you know, type of work is going to probably be layered on top of the ARM stuff as well. And I wonder if this is step one to get into FPGA protection too. Mm, could be. Also Raspberry Pis, but that's not, I don't think a market aqua's, I don't think any security <laughs> vendors going after it, quite frankly. In fact, Virtual I've been, Pies? well, I've been kind of disappointed in the, the overall lack of support for the ARM-based platform uh, because, I mean, Raspberry Pis are so cheap and easy to, to deploy, right. but sometimes you right. just don't get the support. There's a, still a deep divide, I think, between consumer stuff and uh, and enterprise stuff. And you know, I mm. remember years ago talking to you know, I covered the endpoint space when I was uh, an industry analyst, and I, I remember um, back in 2015, 2016, you know, trying to talk uh, endpoint vendors into considering personal devices. Really, you know, they were moving into the position where you had to predict protect the individual, not just the individual that works at this company and has some corporate devices, mm. you know, because corporate stuff happens on personal devices as well. And now with the pandemic, that line is completely blurred. You yeah. know, home networks are now corporate networks. And, and how do you, you know, protect pers- a, a Chromebook? Right. I, I don't, I don't know of very many, if any security vendors that are supporting a Chromebook. And some of those are arm based, which is kind of interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, in most cases, I think people wouldn't even know if their Chromebook was uh, was x86 based or ARM based. You know, you can't tell from using the interface, and they certainly wouldn't know if they were hacked <laughs> on a Chromebook. And, and there are ARM based Windows uh, laptops yes. now. You know, so that's a thing, like entry level laptops um, that are ARM based. So, you oh know, yeah, isn't it, one of the Surface Microsoft Surface is ARM based? The have, Go maybe the Go I think is ARM based. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you need some support there if uh, some of that stuff is used in your organization. Maybe some agent-based uh, support for ARM mm. on Windows. Yeah, so you can run. There is a Windows 10 ARM. Yes, and people had that running in virtualization on an M Apple M1, and it ran. Oh fa- yeah, and it ran faster. That was the deal. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it, how the architecture. Uh, kind of changes and shifts and what the support will be from you know various vendors especially cybersecurity yeah apple moving their you know their laptops over to arm um is going to further this along as well I yeah think. yeah and it, i mean you know ron mentioned big sur and they've done some crazy things with the security platform that i think have thrown a monkey wrench um of course the desktop still being dominated by windows but you know Mac still has a lot of usage in the in the enterprise, more so than twenty years ago, certainly. So if you're not already coding in Go, you know you've got some more incentive to mm. do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, you know your language is going to you know dependent on the how uh, the ability of it to support those different architectures. So what you're saying, Adrian, is that Go is easier, much to, easier to cross. Yeah, if you platforms. suddenly need to produce an ARM-based agent, yeah, yeah. Go is going to be a lot easier to do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Any other uh, stories we wanted to cover? Oh, I'm I'm funded out. Funded out. <laughs> <laughs> funded out. A single, Certainly. a billion in investment in a single week in a market that's valued at what, Tyler? 
100 billion? I, I don't even know what the I don't even if know what the sizing services? of it is. I mean, you uh, know, we had solar winds. Last I checked it was like the product side was half that. But it, you know, we had solar winds and now we've got this exchange thing. So, you know, as long yeah. as people keep hacking and making the headlines, uh, you're going to see funding. I don't know if that how much that plays into it. I think that's pure, you know, a lot of speculation there, but still. And even even if it is a bubble like like Ron said, I found it interesting that Ron said it's just going to get it's going to keep getting bigger. It's right. Uh, right. Yeah. It's that's not going to be a burst point. That's why I asked about the bubble question because, mm. you know, I'm doing these investments into some of these companies thinking, geez, this is just out- outrageous valuation. Should I be doing this with my money, right? And then, yeah, I, I think I'm in agree with, agreement with them. I don't see it go- going down anytime soon just because the problem is so vast, so broad, and the other companies are willing to make the payments to buy these these smaller ones. Yep. And despite what Gula said, I've never seen many – failures to exit in this market. You know, I think we've we've seen some cipher clouds and some bromiums, you know, where the exit is is uh, you know, certainly upside down based on on the money put in. Um, you know, but rarely do you see just an asset sale or a company yeah. just go out of business. Like no, most true. of them get some kind of exit. Yep. It's certainly safer than any other market, like any other, you know, dev tools market or mm. commercial mm-hmm. style markets. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, thank you everyone for listening and watching. And we're not going to end the show. We're going to come up next with Ilya Kolachenko from ImmuniWeb. Stay tuned. We're proud to announce CISO Stories, a new podcast series in partnership with Cybersecurity Collaborative and Cyber Reason. CISO Stories features the candid perspectives and experiences of frontline senior security executives and dives deep into timely security topics. CISO Stories is hosted by Todd Fitzgerald, VP of Cybersecurity Strategy at Cybersecurity Collaborative, and Sam Curry, Chief Product and Security Officer at Cyber Reason. Listen weekly as they speak with extraordinary CISOs by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CSP. Today's connected world leaves no room for errors. Newstar reliably secures those connections. Newstar's cloud solutions, which include web application security, DDoS protection, DNS services, IP geolocation, and threat intelligence, ensure network availability across the globe. With over 20 years of award-winning security experience, Newstar proudly enables and protects digital assets of some of the world's largest enterprises. Find out how your company can benefit from the power of Newstar's trusted connection by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Newstar. Secure your world with Newstar. Always on, ultra secure. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. If you missed Security Weekly Unlocked, you can access all of the content on demand, whether you registered for the live event or not. Simply go to securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked and either log in or register for all of the awesome content. Ilya Kolachenko is the founder of ImmuniWeb with over 15 years of security auditing and digital forensics practice. He joins us today to discuss the challenges of discovering and handling exposed data and vulnerabilities before the bad guys do. Ilya, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me today. And of course, Adrian Sanabria is here with us for uh, this interview as well, which is which is good because Adrian, I think, did a lot of the or all of the testing <laughs> on ImmuniWeb uh, in our not so secret lab testing projects. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Adrian. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, Ilya and I have already had some uh, interesting conversations on this topic, and it's it's good to record them this time. Yeah, 
Awesome. Outstanding. So Ilya, um, uh, how did you uh, get started with, um, you know, creating the company ImmuniWeb? So uh, ImmuniWeb is my second company. My first company was an MSSP provider, and we've been doing a lot of traditional cybersecurity services, spanning from penetration testing to digital forensics. And uh, I've been always dreaming about building a scalable global company. This is actually what we successfully did at ImmuniWeb. We now uh, operate 24-7, 365 days a year in over 50 countries. And uh, at ImmuniWeb, we scale application security. We aim to make it easily consumable, practical, and we really, uh, let's say, try to make it uh, valuable for different people in uh, the teams. I'm talking about software engineers. I'm talking about penetration testers and IT people. It, it sounds like, Ilya, that you're you're covering a lot of ground, but also kind of very focused in keeping your application secure, but also including, I think, a very important component, which is attack surface monitoring and dark web uh, monitoring in that. So I guess you kind of give us an overview of what your goals are. Like if I sign up for a MuniWeb, you've got some great community additions out there for, for people to try. Um, like what can I expect and what problems are you solving? That is correct. And at the MuniWeb, I'd say we try to deliver value and we try to deliver practical insights to our customers. We mostly do business with medium and large sized organizations from regulated industries like banking, healthcare, government, e-commerce. And uh, our customers usually have a common challenge, how to identify all their web applications, APIs, uh, on-prem or third-party hosted to make sure that they're not missing anything to ensure that their application security testing and remediation program uh, is uh, holistic and complete. And the second challenge is how to prioritize both testing and remediation. I think we all agree that today in 2021, it's just economically impractical to detect all of your vulnerabilities. It is likewise economically impractical to remediate all of your security weaknesses, it will just cost too much. So at MuniWeb, what we do, we try to provide our clientele with a holistic visibility, a sort of helicopter view of their external attack surface, including web applications, API, cloud storage, third-party managed and hosted SaaS systems, network services, IoT devices accessible from the internet, virtually everything that cyber criminals can detect uh, and uh, start their exploitation campaigns. Uh, once they have this visibility, we'll perform uh, risk scoring to shed light on potential weaknesses, vulnerabilities, misconfigurations to ensure that testing and remediation will be performed in a risk-based and a threat-aware manner. Then we support our customers with penetration testing for their web applications, APIs, mobile applications. And we try to ensure that our customers will have a data-driven approach to their application security and will get the value. And uh, importantly, that everyone on their side, I mean, software engineers, penetration testers, uh, IT administrators will have some practical value. We have uh, full stack integration with DevSecOps tools and technologies 
to make sure that everyone will see something uh, helpful because uh, I come from traditional penetration testing and, you know, uh, a decade ago, uh, some traditional penetration testing reports were just a paper-based or PDF report that you cannot really leverage for efficient remediations and software engineers uh, didn't like penetration testing, to put it mildly. Uh, today, we try to make sure that everyone in the team will have uh, one-click access to the data, will have uh, readily available 24-7 support in case of any questions, in case of any assistance that may be required. So we really try to ensure that everyone in the team will get something beneficial for him or her. Yeah, I really like that it's a, a holistic assessment because I think we think about the components of an assessment that is to understand your attack surface, to understand some of the conditions which aren't necessarily a traditional vulnerability scan kind of thing. And then also do that penetration testing exercise, which I've found, you know, super important. I think recently I've kind of lost sight of some of the value. And then I go off and I do a penetration test of a web app or I look at it closely and I'm like, you really need that human step. Like you just, you need someone looking at your web app and trying to understand how to, how to cheat it, right? How to, to bend it in ways uh, that it wasn't necessarily meant to. But that's very different from assessing the vulnerabilities and also very different from understanding the attack surface. I agree. And that probably also adds that uh, today, uh, I think we all agree that visibility is a key and it's like step zero to ensure that your application security program will be efficient and effective. But I also believe that keeping an eye on the bad guys is also super important. Mm. This is actually why at ImmuniWeb, we provide a bundled solution of attack surface management that is combined with dark web monitoring. So you will get not just your assets, but you will also see what is the surrounding activities of the bad guys, what they're doing. You will be informed about phishing campaigns, about domain squatting, about fake accounts in social networks. Uh, you will have a good overview of what's going on on uh, underground hacking forums, marketplaces, IRC channels that are still alive. Uh, you know, you will likely get some information about trivial incidents like stolen credentials from third parties to more sophisticated and dangerous uh, incidents like stolen uh, backups of your executive emails or compromised cloud storage that belongs to your organization. So we really combine visibility with the surrounding threat landscape because I believe that in 2021, visibility isolated from the threat landscape is insufficient. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I like the Darknet Diaries podcast and they just talked about uh, the LinkedIn breach from 2011 and how they found their uh, database uh, on the dark web. And it took them six weeks to backtrack and uncover, like a team of 40 plus people in six weeks to do the forensics investigation to figure out what happened. And it was neat to listen to this in all one podcast because it tells the whole story. Like they traced it back to someone with a Mac at their house that was using VPN and, and the whole story was really interesting. But the the initial indicator of compromise was, by the way, your, your user database, yeah, that, that's on the dark web. 
<laughs> yeah, I agree. And it was sort of acceptable in uh, 2011. But today, I think all possible uh, governmental authorities in the United States and the European Union will be very unhappy, will likely impose uh, harsh sanctions. And under GDPR, CCPA, mm. and the companies who just find their database on the dark web saying, wow, that's like interesting. Uh, I think they will have a long lasting legal and financial uh, consequences. Yeah. So I'd say being proactive, not just reactive is very important. Agreed. Adrian, I know you've done some, some testing and yeah, yeah. So, you know, after looking at a bunch of these tools, you know, it, it, it's clear that there's a bunch of use cases here, uh, different philosophies, you know, that people are taking into this area. You know, some of the tools are very focused on scanning the entire Internet and and trying to be as complete as possible, uh, while others are, are more focused on, you know, just uh, surfacing the, the most important things. Um, and, and it's an interesting uh, conundrum, you know, that you have to kind of balance those two things, I think, because otherwise this becomes yet another security tool. It says, Hey, guess what? You have a million more things to make decisions on, you know, to decide what to do with, to prioritize, to figure out, um, you know, and I, I think most security teams don't probably don't have the resources to do that on their own, you know? So the, um, you know, I find myself leaning towards the tools that do the most work uh, uh, for you in in that respect, because when when we're talking about not only, you know, when we say attack surface management, you know, it's not only your direct infrastructure, you know, but like you're saying, uh, you know, it, it's still debatable, you know, whether or not I'm going to include some of these companies that um, lean more on data leaks, because there there are some like digital shadows that. Uh, you know, in Terbium Labs that only look at the data leak side of things, which uh, which is not really what we're trying to look at here. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll totally buy that. You know, that can totally be part, part of it. You know, things that show up on, um, you know, have I been pwned, you know, uh, stuff that gets used in credential stuffing, things like that. Uh, keys on, on public code repositories. You know, there, there's so much here. And I think it's really um, uh, an accomplishment if if you can bring all that together, uh, you know, in a meaningful way and a prior, you know, prioritize it and make it useful to a security team where they're just not suddenly buried in in just thousands and thousands of new tasks. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, there are, are vendors that message on exposure, and. What I like about what you built, uh, Ilya, is that it really is focused on exposure, right? It's not like narrow in one one particular area. Is to be effective at security, you have to first understand your exposures and then have a really clean and neat process to respond to those. Um, my my question for you is, how do you make it easy for your customers to view the threats and actually take action? So I'm probably. Uh also um, mentioned that uh, why we decided actually to combine, to bundle attack surface management and dark web um, monitoring is because we observe some organizations that believe that uh, dark web monitoring is a good start. They will search for some keywords, their domain names, and indeed this is a good start, but especially during the pandemic, 
uh, we see a tremendous number of organizations who are silently breached. They are unaware that they have been hacked uh, despite their continuous monitoring of the dark web. Uh, why this happens, one of the examples we may have is that their employees, their loyal employees who are motivated to continue their operations during the pandemic, they create shadow IT resources, you know, spanning from uh, Dropbox where they can upload their customer database to some in-house managed, created somehow in the cloud or somewhere, you know, a simple CRM systems in order to replace their corporate uh, systems that they cannot use for one reason or another. Eventually, such uh, systems are oftentimes vulnerable, are exposed to the internet, and when they are silently breached, no one is aware. And importantly, if you are aware that you have this specific system that is operated by your team or uh, contains your your data, you will likely detect it on the dark web. However, if you just take your keywords, your brand name, your domain names, and you just search for them, you will likely miss something. So this is, uh, I would say, uh, one of the key reasons we decided to make it like everything in one package. So you will be able to make well-informed, uh, risk-based, threat-aware decisions. And the idea behind the Muni web platform is that you can start with very simple discovery because in order to start a discovery process with Muni web, you just enter your company name, no other actions, no other details are required. And you will be able to see what the attacker is capable to see, is capable to ferret out from, from the outside without any access to your technical data, to your internal information and uh, you will, practically speaking, put yourself into the attacker's shoes, and then you can observe, you can make decisions, you can correlate your assets, you can correlate some misconfigurations, weaknesses with different noise on the dark web with confirmed and verified incidents. So you really have some substance to make uh, sound decisions that are based on facts, and uh, that can uh, prevent different incidents instead of just reacting on them. How do you do the search from just a uh, company name? Can you give me some examples? Because like, I, I think you bring up a really good point that especially today, there's so many tools out there that are for free, not security tools, but like if I'm struggling with my CRM, it's a great example. I can go to HubSpot, get a free account and start using a CRM and start putting company data on there. And do you, how do you find that kind of stuff, I guess at a, a high level without giving away any trade secrets or anything, right? So uh, I would say we have a myriad of different examples and uh, usually we have a unique customer name, so it's not a big challenge, okay? However, if we see that we have the very same company name in Spain and let's say in Germany, we will probably need to contact our customers to uh, ask for clarification about which specific company they're talking about. But this is very uh, rare case, okay? Then once we have a company name, we usually start with a website and then we have all interrelated, you know, uh, intertwined resources. Uh, we go through uh, sometimes very long chains of discovery. For example, we may identify a source code that uh, is likely uh, owned or belongs to the customer because it contains different uh, 
uh, APIs uh, different, you know, IP addresses belonging to the customer. And we see that uh, likely the source code belongs to the customer. And we may discover some assets in the source code. Then let's say we discover websites that is hard coded there. Uh, we see that the website is located in the cloud. Then we try to identify neighboring web applications. So the exploration chain can uh, really be uh, pretty long. Sometimes it takes weeks to ferret out all possible assets. Some other searches are fairly simple. You can just uh, use different databases of who is records of IP ranges. Uh, frequently, you can easily uh, identify different uh, websites uh, belonging to the customer. Cloud storage, it really depends on the cloud provider. You know, sometimes you can just uh, brute force identifiers, you know, or subdomains. Uh, in other more specific use cases, you really have to find a technical nexus. For example, that there is some data that is being loaded from the cloud. Sometimes you may see, um, you may find a document enumerating cloud resources of, of the customer. So it can really be a long process, but you know, given how uh, diverse uh, today's environment, IT environment is, sometimes you can just go to Stack Overflow and you will see uh, engineers of your client talking about many interesting and oftentimes confidential things. Mm. And I would say external discovery is not that complicated. It is definitely time consuming. It requires a lot of processing power. It requires a lot of storage capacities. And it also requires the new powerful technology to distill, to purify the data because you will have a lot of noise otherwise. Mm. And for example, at Immuniweb, we use machine learning to remove duplicates to uh, eliminate some of the elements, host assets that are unlikely owned or uh, belongs to our customer. So it's it's an interesting process where you really need to uh, continuously improve the algorithms. For example, you know, when we are searching for mobile apps, uh, different mobile app stores, they continuously change uh, the ways you can interact with them. So our engineers in charge of mobile application discovery, I know that they make amendments almost every week, uh, cloud similar issues. So it's an ongoing process of continuous improvement and discovery. Ilya, how much are you... Uh kind of fingerprinting the source code. It's interesting. I, I was looking at a piece of an application that had some JavaScript. It wasn't obfuscated. Not that de-obfuscating is necessarily that that tough, but it does make it a little harder, especially to provide automation, automation depending on how advanced the obfuscation is. But in the JavaScript, it was like, you know, it's this version. It was released on this date. And these are the two developers' names, first and last, separated by a comma. And that must be some of the good indicators that you have to go like where else have these developers push code, uh, searching Stack Overflow, right? Those are the kind of breadcrumbs that I'd imagine you're, you're looking for, right? Uh, you mentioned several good examples. Yes, or I would probably say the biggest challenge is not really obfuscation, but it's rather about custom modification of a JavaScript library. Because mm -hmm. when you have some parts of the source code that is removed, uh, that's more or less fine. But when you also have some in-house code that was manually added. This makes fingerprinting cha a challenging process. So it really depends on the specific use case. Sometimes you have 
bundled JavaScript libraries that come with a specific CMS. So uh, sometimes you may rely on different companies to say, okay, if you have this specific software, most likely this is a specific version of the JavaScript library. Um, so sometimes you have complicated use cases when it's just technically impossible to fingerprint a specific version, but at least you can guess saying that uh, this specific version is likely falling into the range of 1.2 to 1.4. And we know that the most recent is 1.6. So regardless, you know, which specific version you have, mm -hmm. make sure that uh, you will update this specific JavaScript library as soon as possible. Yeah, that, that gets really tricky. Um, Ilya, tell us about the, the community edition. What, um, what features are, are in the community edition and what functionality? And then how does that differ from the commercial version? So community edition is something that we provide at no cost for anyone. Uh, today we have almost 100,000 daily tests and we offer four free online tests to check application security of your website, to test your mobile application, uh, to search for your dark web exposure and different uh, um, phishing, domain squatting, uh, social network squatting activities, and also you know to 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 check your SSL, TLS encryption and hardening. I would say the uh, overall idea behind the community edition is to provide everyone, regardless his or her technical skills. Uh, background, geographical location with an access to a uh, foundational cybersecurity and compliance. So students, individual developers, municipal governments, SMEs, I mean, everyone who, who, who cannot afford paying for cybersecurity can get basic security, basic test of his or her website, mobile app, can uh, identify whether their organization is exposed on the dark web. And uh, it is also something that uh, brings, I would say, good recognition to ImmuniWeb because we have many students who are becoming cybersecurity executives uh, and uh, who remember ImmuniWeb, who is offering this at no cost, and would build a sustainable relationship with the community. That's awesome. Adrian, more questions for Ilya? Yeah, no, I, I just think that uh, it's a pretty solid uh, model. Having worked on the uh, the vendor side, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, positive relationships uh, built that way through, through you know, uh, an open source uh, version of the product or, or a community edition, uh, something like that. Because oftentimes, like, we, you know, we just need a window into, you know, what this product can do, you know, like, um, you know, just to call out another random one, you know, how many people have used uh, Qualys's SSL labs, you know, to take a look at their, um, you know, the, the state of, uh, TLS SSL on a, on a particular web server, you know, that it's, it, uh, it's a really handy community tool. And, um, I think just a little bit of exposure into this and, uh, and you, you get a really quick and solid idea of everything that you can do with it. And, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just think that's the way to go, you know, from a, you know, just putting on my vendor hat, my sales and marketing hat, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think one of the most challenging things is is just 
testing out a product, you know, just understanding what it does and, and what it can do. And if you have to go through 20 sales meetings to, to get to that point to where you're, you're doing a proof of concept, you know, oftentimes uh, people just give up, you know, even though, even though it might be a good, good product, you know, they, they'll move on to something else. Ilya, what are some of the major differences between the community edition and some of your paid offerings? Probably I'd say community edition is really a foundational proposal. For example, we will perform a holistic software composition analysis of your website. So we will fingerprint your CMSs, your JavaScript libraries, different extensions, plugins, and we will tell you whether there are uh, publicly disclosed vulnerabilities for the specific software versions that you have. But uh, given that this is a publicly available solution, publicly available online tool, we cannot be intrusive. So we won't perform any types of fuzzing. We won't be testing for SQL injections. Mm. Uh, we won't perform any aggressive uh, testing or scanning. And uh, therefore, some of the complicated vulnerabilities or vulnerabilities impacting your uh, in-house code will likely remain undetected, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, by definition and by design, you need penetration testing in order to discover them. However, for most of the users of the community edition, I would say such non-intrusive production safe approach will likely suffice because most of them have standard installations of WordPresses, Drupal's, Magento's, and they don't need a really advanced penetration testing. And this will fully cover their modest needs <laughs> and ensure that they will not be compromised by a new zero day in one of their uh, WordPress plugins, for example. Mm. That's awesome. That's great. Adrian, more questions for Ilya? Uh, yeah, well, not, not so much questions. You know, just another, another observation here is that, um, you know, I like the fact that, you know, if you need to use ImmuniWeb for a single project, you know, say I'm, I'm consulting with a company, you know, maybe they had a breach or something like that, you know, and I, I just need to get a, a good view of everything that they have. You know, this is something where, you know, it, it could be, 2 a.m. the middle of the night, I can I can just whip out a credit card, and uh, you know, and pay for for a one-time scan. You know, which I I find really handy. Um, you know, it's not not something you typically see with a lot of products in this category. Uh, you know, they tend to you know, it's it's more of a large enterprise. You know, one to three year uh, you know agreement. Uh, you know, across a whole bunch of assets. Uh, you know, but it's always nice to be able to to use a product, uh, you know, in more of a consulting uh, from more of a consulting perspective. Like I, I just need it for the single single project, and and you know, I'm not sure if I'll ever use it again. Um, <clears throat> and it's really nice from that from that respect. Also, um, I do have a question. You know, talking about integrating it into developer workflows. You know, exposing the stuff to DevOps teams, things like that. Uh, you know, you you mentioned that it, it does integrate um, well into, into that stuff. Could could you touch on that a little bit, Ilya? Sure. So, practically speaking, we have integrations with the most popular tools, uh, you know, spanning from Jira and GitHub Issue Tracker, for example, to uh, ServiceNow. And uh, we also have technology alliances with the leading web application firewall providers like F5 or Fortinet or Imperial or Barracuda. So uh, 
alongside with a report with uh, probabilities, you get customized rule sets so you can easily remediate, I mean, uh, deploy virtual patching in two clicks. So we really try to make sure that developers, they won't get a PDF report and start, you know, uh, discussing how they hate penetration testing, but they will be uh, in a convenient position to prioritize with their uh, ongoing existing tasks. They will uh, have a simple way to virtually parts the vulnerabilities while they are doing more important things. So we really try to make it easily consumable, easily digestible. And Andrew, just another point regarding uh, the availability of ImmuniWeb. Uh, we really enjoy this flexibility as well because I know many large accounts who for, uh, I would say, internal organization uh, reasons, they don't want or they cannot yet consume a subscription. Uh, and they really enjoy that they can uh, customize their consumption model in any way they want. So if they'd like to conduct five pen tests this week and 17 more next week and nothing for the five consecutive weeks, that's perfectly fine. We try to deliver most flexibility. And sometimes, you know, in large organizations, we still have... Uh, I would say uh, operations organized in such a way that developers will not enjoy a subscription because they just cannot uh, consume so many vulnerabilities and findings. So it will just, you know, bring a mess. And uh, I observe that some of the startups from the cybersecurity industry, they impose obligatory subscription. We obviously have a subscription and we have a growing number of uh, uh, large customers who prefer subscription for many good reasons. But likewise, we have a small portion of clientele who really enjoys this flexibility that 24 uh, 7, you know, 365 days a year, you can customize, schedule, and start your penetration test. You have no restrictions, you have no binding. Uh, and uh, we're really trying to make sure that everyone who is using ImmuniWeb on a one-time basis or on a continuous basis will feel comfortable. Yeah, definitely. And one last uh, question. You know, one thing uh, I, I think I've seen that's really divided this market is the, the idea that this tool should just be used for your own uh, resources, things that you own. Um, or that they they're just wide open for everybody. You know, if 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 uh, say you've got a third party vendor or a competitor or or just a, a company that you saw in the news get get breached, you know that that you can use this attack surface uh, monitoring product to go see what they look like. You know, go go check them out. And, and I've noticed it's very polarizing. Like like some of these companies, some of these products. Uh, you know, are, are, are very focused and say, yeah, no, this is, you have to actually prove that you own the, these assets. Um, and that's the only way um, you, you can, uh, you know, that, that will run any of these scans for you is if you can prove that you own this domain or you own these resources. Uh, and that's one extreme. And then the other extreme are the folks that have these scans of the entire internet. And really what you're paying them for is the ability to just query that database of uh, internet scans. So I, just curious on, on your, your view, like 
I'm not sure if there's legal issues, you know, since all this is public data, right? Uh, with, with giving people access to, to other people's results, you know, or if that's more of a uh, product focus or a business focus. That is a great question, Adrian. I'd probably say the question is really complicated. Um, I would say a lot of customers of ImmuniWeb use ImmuniWeb Discovery, our discovery tool for uh, third-party risk management. The advantage is that ImmuniWeb Discovery is OSINT-based. Uh, it is non-intrusive. It is production safe. So we'll not be running any aggressive port scanning. We won't be doing you know, fuzzing of your web applications. Uh, so it is safe to be run on third parties, okay? From a formal viewpoint, uh, you don't really need a permission, okay? However, we always uh, ask our customers that they coordinate these third-party risk management with their vendors. It's not even a question of law, I would say. It's rather a question of ethics. And uh, we see some good development of law, for example, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, last year, they released guidelines on how to explore, how to monitor dark web, not to be uh, in violation of uh, U.S. federal law, okay, but you also have to keep in mind state laws, and uh, sometimes they can be tricky, okay, but at least there are guidelines how to perform dark web monitoring without uh, uh, violating U.S. federal laws. So in a nutshell, uh, what we also do at ImmuniWeb when uh, our customers are performing uh, third-party discovery, for example, uh, we, we will not provide them with plain text passwords, even if they're widely available on the dark web or you can find them on Pastebin, for example. We will just inform them about specific data breaches, incidents implicating their vendors, because at the end of the day, you don't really need to see personal, oftentimes, passwords of your vendor employees. You just need to be aware that a specific incident uh, occurred when and what is the scale. And then you will probably be able to support your third-party vendor, your supplier. I would say the idea of third-party risk management uh, we provide at ImmuniWeb is not to expose, but rather to support uh, the third parties to make sure that our clients and their uh, external vendors will be able to collaborate, uh, will be able to support each other. Uh, oftentimes it's a question of cost, who will pay for discovery, who will pay for mitigation, who will pay for insurance. And I'd say today we have a lot of polarized approach, you know, uh, sometimes uh, large organizations, they shift uh, the burden of uh, cybersecurity to their vendors, uh, making, uh, I would say, unreasonable contractual clauses saying that regardless, you know, whatsoever happens, you will be accountable and you will pay us all fees, costs, attorney fees. Uh, sometimes, you know, we have country-wise, I'd say we have contracts that are I would say don't bring a lot of values. They just ask questions like, do you have a web application firewall and do you have an antivirus software? And if you say yes, you quickly pass the compliance. So I, I think that third-party risk management 
is to be uh, risk-based, uh, has to consider, you know, which type of data you entrust to a specific vendor, its size, because sometimes, you know, with uh, startups, it's easier to negotiate the conditions. However, it does not necessarily provide you with a better protection because uh, what I know from my experience when your suppliers uh, immediately agree to sign your terms of service, for me, it's rather a red flag because usually I would say all vendors will try to negotiate something, will try to ask for a couple of amendments. Otherwise, they just uh, probably didn't read it. They just signed it and sent it back to you. Or they're so desperate to get cash that they are prepared to sign any agreements you provide them with. <laughs> so for me, when your third party, when your vendor immediately signs uh, any terms of service you provide them with, it's rather a bad sign. So I would say that third party risk management uh, it's really to be tailored for specific use cases. For example, if you have an external cleaning company that is in charge of your office management and cleaning, probably you need to pay a lot of attention on physical security, uh, background check, and other things. However, when you entrust your, I would say, trade secrets or PII of your customers to third parties, you really need to make sure that uh, it's not just a questionnaire that uh, says yes to all questions and confirms that their organization has all the security controls in place, but you should also negotiate somehow in a fair manner, in a two-sided manner that you will be getting uh, at least yearly penetration testing reports, internal security assessment reports in a monthly basis. So you will really have some tangible proofs that the vendor is not just striving to make security controls effective and efficient, but that they are being tested, uh, preferably by a third party, that you have a thorough and well sought um, incident response plan, that you have data breach investigation plan, because otherwise uh, you may be liable for your third party because Frequently, and this is what we observe both in the European Union and in the United States, uh, frequently a large company may be liable for negligence of a third party saying it was your duty as well to uh, control to ensure that your suppliers take due care of the data of your customers that you entrust to them. And uh, frequently we just see that courts say, uh, you know, you have a lot of money, so you will be paying for your smaller suppliers and vendors. We don't really care that they were grossly negligent and you did some due diligence and you've been following a specific framework. It's not a check, it's not, not a checkbox approach. You really have to consider uh, all the details, and sometimes you have to overinvest, you know, in some of your suppliers to make sure that your data and data of, you, of your customers is secure. Yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting can of worms. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have you back on to, to dive deeper into that, uh, you know, negligence and, and third party risk assessments. And uh, I, I mean, it's it's a really interesting topic. You know, I've been having conversations with a lot of folks um, you know, on, on, on those topics in, in, in the last couple of weeks. 
and uh, yeah, liability there. It, it's it's hugely interesting, you know, especially from country to country too. Right, Ilya. Thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise uh, Security Weekly. I want to encourage our listeners to check out the Community Edition. Uh, it's really good stuff. I actually just just ran it uh, as we were talking. So uh, very easy to do and completely free. Thank you very much for appearing on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that will conclude this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. Thanks, everyone, for listening and watching. See you next time.